The Lord be with you. And tonight I want to pack a lot of truth into the minutes that we have together. And so we are continuing this idea of, of that verse in Acts 17, that the gospel that is centered upon the person of Jesus is the ultimate, in fact, I would say the only true revolution that this world has known. Revolution. And going back into the Gospels, have you noticed when Jesus would speak or when he would do his works of healing or miracles, so often it tells us the response of the people. And that response is in two words that you would find. It's, it's pepper and salted all through the Gospels. They were amazed. Do you remember that one? Or sometimes it says they were astonished. They were astonished at his words. They were amazed at his works. And, and those two words, uh, I, I suppose you could read through the Gospels quickly and, and not notice them, but actually they become some of the central words of the Scripture, that wherever Jesus spoke or worked his works there resulted in astonishment and amazement. Now, those two words, very interestingly, are used elsewhere um, to describe the reaction of a person when their world has just collapsed. That is a person, shall we say, facing an earthquake, uh, that suddenly their world collapses, or facing a tornado for the same reasons, a hurricane. And, and as they come out of that collapse of their entire world, these words would be the ones used, amazed, astonished, um, and, and so you could translate them as, what should we say, beside oneself. Actually, that is one of the meanings, the exact meanings of the Greek word there. It means to stand outside of oneself, and therefore you're not in possession of your own mind right now. It, it would mean that you are bewildered. That would be another good word. Uh, stunned. All of those words, put them together. Here is something that the world has not only never seen, but they recognize that in what they have just seen and heard, their world is collapsing. And, and we could even take it to the idea of tornado and hurricane, as long as you can think of a hurricane of divine love. As long as you could think of a tornado of divine compassion and goodness sweeping through one's life, there, there you would have it. An earthquake indeed, in which my flimsy, fragile life that I have constructed out of some of the best thoughts I had, but they're totally off. And now when truth comes, it's like an earthquake and the whole jolly lot collapses. That's, that's this. That's this word. Um, and that's the response that people had. Have you ever thought of that? That Jesus, yes, he brings unspeakable joy. Yes, he brings a peace that passes human comprehension. But in bringing that, he collapses the life that we thought was the only life that could be lived. And therefore, you get this same idea of revolution, that he comes to turn over the present order. He comes to bring about a drastic and most basic change to the way things are. In fact, as the rest of the New Testament would tell us, he came to bring about new creation. Okay, against that background, I, I want to look at this Jesus. Um, that, that might sound sort of strange talking to you, um, but I do. I, I want to speak to my fellow believers concerning Jesus because he is the one that produced this amazement. 
He is the one who left people bewildered and stunned and astonished and standing outside of themselves in a beautiful confusion. He is the one. He, he, you see. And so the result of he amazing them and astonishing them when they got over it, at least for a few minutes, then comes another question. And it's on the, the lips of those that heard him, sometimes um, the, the leaders of the Pharisees, sometimes his own disciples. They said, who is this man? Who is he? We can't, we, there's no file for him. We've never seen anybody like him. We can't compare him to anyone else. All the disciples said, you remember, after he stilled the storm, it, it was, what manner of man is this? Who is this person? Jesus recognized this reaction in people, remember? And he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? It's imperative, especially in today's world of milksop religion, where we, we don't really look at who Jesus is and, and what he has accomplished because of who he is. Now, in answer to the questions as to who he is and what is he doing, and sometimes when it's unspoken, the, on, on one occasion, you remember, he took Zacchaeus, that, that miserable little tax collector who had swindled and cheated everybody in town, and Jesus chooses him to have dinner with. Do you remember that story? And at the, when, when they come out from the dinner, Zacchaeus announces to the world, you might say at a press conference, in which he, he was transformed. And at that time, Jesus announced his mission. He, he gave, in a single sentence, his identity. And that was that he, the Son of Man, is come to seek and to save that which is lost. And, of course, he was saying the likes of Zacchaeus are lost, and these are the people I've come for, those who know they're lost. And, and he also added to that phrase uh, that it's, it's more than once in the Gospels he says that. He's come to seek and to save that which is lost. But then he, shall I say, extends that with stories, and chief among those stories are those of Luke 15. And if you have been listening to me for anything more than two or three years, you are going probably to say, no, not Luke 15 again. Well, I have spent 60 years of my life in Luke 15, and um, it might do all of us good to do the same, because there Jesus is telling us his identity, his mission. He is taking that phrase, I'm come to seek and to save that which is lost, and expanding it in stories. And it's the first story that I, I believe takes us to the very heart of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Read it quickly, uh, Luke 15, verse 4 through 6. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture, go after the one which is lost, until, big word that, until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Um, simple story. I, I, in a few minutes, I think you'll see just how profound that story is. But it, it goes with the whole idea. You see, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And then in this chapter, he gives us a series of lost things and creatures and persons, and always this drive of the owner to find them. 
That that's you've got to get that. That explains the, the people are saying, "Who is this man? What's he doing? What's he up to?" He says, "I'm here on a mission, seeking and seeking to save that which is lost." And so you the the passage of Luke 15 opens with, with lost. The sheep is lost and lost in the wilderness. And there in Israel, there are, and certainly were, some pretty horrendous places for a sheep to be lost. There's the fact that get into those areas of wilderness and ravines, precipices, rock scree, you get there, and if you're sheep, you're not coming out alive. In fact, that's a given. Um, there, there's nothing to eat there except just little patches of uh, dried-out grass. There's no water for sure. And, and predators that are just waiting for some idiot sheep to get there. You see, the sheep, it is the, the strangest of all creatures because essentially by its very makeup, a sheep cannot live alone. Um, and by that I don't mean it's got to have a lot of other sheep. No, you could have a hundred sheep and they can't live alone. Sheep must have a human shepherd. They just must because you can call them what you will, stupid or totally dependent or whatever, but that's the way sheep are. And therefore for a sheep, A, to get away from the other sheep and B, to get away from the shepherd and C, to do that into a trackless wilderness. No, that that sheep's a goner. That sheep's dead. But Jesus uses the word lost. And as I've commented before, the word lost, uh, which has been hijacked by many today, uh, they, they would say, well, it means he's lost, damned in hell and forgotten. But the word lost in anybody's language means that something is precious. You only use that term to describe the absence from your person of something that you count to be extremely precious, right down to the the child um, that goes missing, and immediately the call goes out, a child is lost. It, It means that the child, the most precious of the village, of the town, and therefore the whole town will turn out to seek, to save the lost child. It means the precious is in grave danger, that which we refuse to live without, and so we go to seek. And and so it's the things that really matter in your life. Um, jewelry that cost much when it goes missing you say you lost it and immediately the search takes place well you see here you've got the sheep that is lost in in, in many ways this, this sheep that uh, so demands the presence of the human it demands just by its its dependency its weakness its inability to have the sense to look after itself you would think, you would think that instinctually it would stay very close to the shepherd. But there is, well, who can penetrate a sheep's mind? Um, but in, in the sheep's mind, by observation anyway, there, there's a madness, you see. It, it's, it's, you'd have to say the sheep has a, a tinge of insanity because it, it seeks to wander off. This sheep that by its very creation, by its being, is dependent, is ever seeking independence. It's, it's a, a journey of madness that it will get off from, from the herd and, and start going on, on its own journey as if it knows that there is greater pleasure beyond that there is more grass and of tastier kind than it's ever had, that there are sheep pleasures beyond that next ravine, and so on. That madness, and, and I have to say it. it. It goes off on its independent journey into a world of extreme danger. It's not going to last for very long. If you're going to find it, it will, you've got to do it within the first few hours. 
full of uh, predators, the threat of starvation and thirst. And, of course, this terrible aloneness for an animal that in by its creation is meant to be with shepherd, dependent, and with other sheep. It's lost. It's no wonder that the Scripture says all we, like sheep, have gone astray. Um, it, uh, there, there are many animals we could be likened to have, that have a lot of common sense, but uh, not sheep, but we're likened to sheep, to, to have that desire to get away from the God for whom we were created. Insanity. And I have to say that if I am to define sin, I have to use the word insanity in there somewhere, or madness, because there's no logic to go away from all that I need for all that I was created for and to go into the wilderness and the darkness of lie and condemnation and danger and ultimate uh, meaningless deathness. And yet, of course, I say again, using the word lost, we're saying right from the get-go that this sheep is of vast importance. This sheep, this one sheep, has tremendous significance and worth to the shepherd. That's why he called it lost. And that's why it is the total attention of the shepherd has the shepherd's focus on this sheep. Let me take this, and I'm not pushing this. This is right there in that story. This sheep is so precious that the life of the shepherd is equated with the life of the sheep. Now, you might not have thought of that before, but you see, anything that goes lost... There, there comes the question, what will you give? To what extent will you go in order to retrieve that which is lost? How precious is that to you? How far will you go? Well, you could say, what kind of reward will you give? To what extent will you risk yourself to get that back? Okay, apply that here. The life of the sheep, the sheep, I say again, has gone into a wilderness that is fraught with danger, terrors, predators, and and that's true for humans as well as sheep. Sheep's gone into a, a place that is dangerous for anyone, everyone. So if this sheep is so precious, what... Are you? How far are you willing to go, shepherd, to get the sheep back? What will you pay, if you could put it that way? He goes himself. Now, do you understand what I mean? How precious is the life of the sheep? I'll give my own life. I will go myself to get, to find, to retrieve, restore the sheep. And, of course... There, there is here the remembrance Jesus is telling a story. And therefore, when he tells a story, you know he's chosen carefully every word. And so he says that one sheep goes astray. And if you've been around sheep, that's not the case. Uh, sheep are so stupid that they will follow any other sheep. In fact, um, if a jackass walks by, they'll probably follow it too. They So, so one sheep, that, that in itself tells me that this is a strange story. If only one sheep had wandered away. What's he saying? That each one, Jesus has announced himself, I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. But he's not going to do it in a sort of magic sweep of the hand across the whole human race. Rather, he is saying that each individual person It is as if that one is the totality of the purpose of God love. And he has come to seek us one by one by one and to save us one by one by one, each one. And Jesus is is God himself giving his life for us. 
The life of the shepherd equals the life of the sheep. God said that you and I are of such supreme, infinite, limitless, eternal value to him that he gave his very self. God came from God to save us. In fact, and this is where the story gets rather profound, and I usually get raised eyebrows when I say this, but this story to the first listeners was understood very plainly that Jesus was declaring himself to be God coming to seek and to save. To us, this story, along with others like it, can can become very, uh, what can I say, Christian sentimental, you know, how sweet, the sheep is lost, and bleating, bleating on the hillside, and the shepherd goes, and we've got those very beautiful pictures of, of, of shepherd on hills seeking sheep. Yeah, it can be very sentimental, makes a jolly good Sunday school story. But the fact is, Jesus risked being stoned for blasphemy when he shared this story. You see, the fact is, Jesus didn't invent this story. Jesus is taking a story, shall I say, that is found in the prophets of the Old Testament and applying it most directly to himself. That would have taken the breath away of certainly all of the temple religious leaders You could say that telling this story and calling himself the shepherd come to seek and to save the lost was was a part of the pathway that led to the cross. Uh, I mean, from the point of view of the religious leaders who crucified him, they, they couldn't hack this. Okay, having said that, you can turn to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. And in verse 11, I'm sure you read this on a regular basis. But anyway, let's read it. Ezekiel 34. Listen, listen. For thus says the Lord God. Notice that. This isn't something that Ezekiel is just throwing out. He says, for thus, what I'm about to say, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep so I the Lord God will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered then further down I will feed my flock I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. Now, that was written approximately, give or take, 500 years before Jesus came. But it was a prophecy that was declaring that the religious leaders had totally failed and in fact were now using people in the name of God and religion. And therefore, he breaks in and says, thus says the Lord God, I will do this myself. I will seek, save, find, restore my lost sheep. That was a massive prophecy. Do you understand? When the people of the days of Jesus were children, they had to memorize these prophets. They all knew this. Ezekiel 34, that's God himself saying he's going to come and seek and save his lost sheep. And here Jesus comes and says, I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. And he doesn't just sort of leave it there. He goes on and says, like a shepherd going into the wilderness to find the sheep and seek it and restore. He is quoting from Ezekiel 34 and claiming that he is God. 
This, this is the beginning of the gospel. Who is Jesus? Why are people astonished and amazed and stunned and bewildered by what he says? Because God himself has come into our world of darkness and he speaks his truth. Jesus, he is one of us, true man, true human. He became human. But as to his person, who is he? He is God, God the Son, who has now joined himself to the human race. Think about that. And in that light, Jesus um, makes, again, and of course if you heard what I just read from Ezekiel, um, the, the Lord God says, these are my sheep and I'm come to seek my sheep. But Jesus said the same thing. He said in these parables that it is the owner of the sheep that goes to find them. He says, rejoice with me, I have found my sheep which was lost. He claims ownership. And, and again, I'm not pushing this. Jesus, you see, is, is not one who is, what can I say, merely close to God. Please understand this. Who is Jesus? He, Jesus is, is not a man with an unusual anointing. He's not one who is empowered to know God as no other human. No. If you say that, you, well, you're just saying he, he's, he's just a very exalted man, got a great message, life-changing message. And so we place him alongside of Gandhi or Martin Luther King or whatever and, and, and say, well, they came with great messages and so Jesus comes with his great message. No, he's not. No, he's not. You say, well, he, he's, he, he made this great act of self-sacrifice. Well, wait, be careful when you say that because he is not a man who made the greatest act of self-sacrifice. And on the other side of the coin, people say, well, really, of course, he is God. But he's God with a mask. He's, he's God pretending to be man. He, 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 he's God doing a sort of charade of being human. And I say no and no and no. Jesus is God the Son of one being with the Father. That is, he shares completely and totally. Being God, God the Father, God the Son, he's of one being with the Father. He is one being with the Holy Spirit, God. And it is God who then takes to himself our humanity. And now he stands among us. He is God who has come into our world. Oh, do you get this? You see, in the Old Testament, he speaks to humans, but it's externally. You, you see, here's Moses, the shepherd, and the burning bush, and God speaks to him out of the burning bush. Wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. We, I mean, I'm in no way degrading it. Is marvelous, but uh, that's not what God was after. That's a paving stone, a stepping stone toward where he's going. He led the Israelites through the wilderness with cloud of um, fire and light and marvelous stuff. Marvelous, yes, but that's God external, external. God is love and love wills to know us in our very deepest core selves. And that's what all the Old Testament strain toward that. It's marvelous what's happening, but, but God's after your very heart. He wants to get inside your mind and imagination. He, he wants to know you. You, the deepest you. And that's the incarnation. God came into our human. He became human, joining our human to himself. 
He never ceased to be God, but he became authentic, true human. And he has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You see, we, we say God gives us grace. Well, that's true, but what do you think of grace? Tell me. Give me a definition of your grace. Because many times when I've asked that question, the answer sounds very much that grace is a vague sort of fluffy energy of niceness and makes me feel fuzzy and good. No, the grace of God, the gift of God, the gift of God, which is the heart of the word grace, the gift of God is not an energy. It's, it's, it's not a thing. It, God can only give himself. God himself is the gift he gives. The gift and the giver are one. Do you understand? God gives himself. And he gave himself into the human race and he came where we are. Or as the parable would continue, the shepherd uh, takes personal responsibility for the salvation of this sheep. Personal. Um, he, he doesn't um, get, get a hired man to go instead of him. He, he, he doesn't go out there um, lo- looking for any old sheep. He takes a personal responsibility to find this one sheep because it's his sheep. You get it. And he takes, as, as a shepherd, he takes personal responsibility because the sheep is incapable of ever coming home by itself. The sheep is incapable of saving itself from the disaster that it finds itself in now in the wilderness. And so this shepherd, that Jesus has said very plainly is himself the fulfillment of a great prophecy. This shepherd goes into the wilderness and it says he goes in seeking. The word seek, strong word. And um, when it says that Jesus came seeking, let, let me give you a quick definition. The word seek, it means well, it, it has at its beginning a desire or a want to achieve a certain end. You, you don't seek unless there is a passionate desire and want to at the beginning. All the steps that have to be taken to get to that goal arise out of the passion, the desire, the want to. Seek, then, means to search diligently. You could say it means to leave no stone unturned. It means to penetrate into a hiding place or penetrate into an area that uh, contains the lost person or lost thing. You're going to penetrate into it. And it, it means you're going to turn aside rocks and and find paths where there were no paths you're going to get in there and getting in there you'll find what you are looking for it also has the meaning of explore you're you're exploring every way to get to your goal it means to hunt down he came seeking us and therefore, he came to us internally. Do you, do you understand that? God didn't stand out here and talk to humans. The prophets had done that. Burning Bush had done that. that that's, that's external. No, God loved you so much. He gave himself. God gave himself to the creature and got inside the human. That means he got inside the heart, the core, got into our emotions, got into our mind, how we think, got into our intellect, got inside our imagination. He made it his own. He became 
human. Do you see? No longer external. It is internal. He has penetrated into the wilderness that is the heart of the human. He's come inside the disobedience of mankind, inside our darkness, inside the madness of the human mind that believes, always believes and believes in the insanity that there is a grander, greater life outside of God than there is inside. Yeah, he is God entering our wilderness to seek us and to save us. He came inside our blindness. He came inside the corruption that the lie produces. He came inside our fears. Hmm. That's the gospel. So you see, the the plan of God is not some distant, remote, impersonal act whereby he'll do something for us and and get us out of punishment and and and, and so no god oh god wants you in the most intimate relationship an intimate relationship that is nothing less than union with you And nothing else will do. God has got to get inside of us, right at the very heart where we say we don't want him. It's so incredible. But if you read this story um, 10,000 times, as I probably have, it will suddenly dawn on you somewhere that, in fact, the shepherd did not only... Um, give his life for the sheep, but in fact, in a very real sense, became the sheep. Because how does he get to the sheep? Well, he has to go into the wilderness, but in the wilderness he begins to tread, right? Tread deliberately, put his foot down along the same pathways, those sheep trails, which in that wilderness are sheep trails of madness. They are journeys of a, a thousand sheep over the centuries uh, of, of insanity. The, these are, he treads those pathways as he seeks and he penetrates and he hunts down. He, he does, he goes the very pathway of, of the sheep. He penetrates that wilderness, taking to himself the experience that the sheep experiences because the shepherd is now facing the same dangers and the same predators. That awful wilderness around him, he's now in it and he can die as fast as a sheep can out there. He's experiencing that. He experiences the fears that the wilderness presses upon him. This pathway that the sheep trod in in insane mind and belief in independence, the same dangers, terrors of the sheep, he's got to go that way. He's got to go that way if he's going to be the savior of the sheep. Sheep's not going to come to him. And remember this, the shepherd has no reason whatsoever to be there in that wilderness experiencing what he's experiencing. No reason. It's no place to go on vacation. This isn't where you take a day off. The sheep, the sheep, the sheep is the only reason the shepherd is there. God became flesh. God became a genuine, authentic human being for one reason only, and it's you. You are the reason that God joined himself to human forever. You know, 
this story, because of the vast importance of that prophecy, it, it colors so much of the scripture about sheep and shepherds. In the last book of the Bible, where you have some of the most incredible insights, he refers to this same one, but says it so beautifully, Revelation 7, verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd, and shall guide them to springs of the water of life, and God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. Well, I could spend a few weeks on that, couldn't we? But look at that. The Lamb shall be their shepherd. Did you hear that? The lamb. But, but lambs, that, uh, they're baby sheep. In fact, the word there actually in Greek is dear little lamb. It means a newborn. And uh, do you hear me? That's what the flock is, sheep and lambs. But it says here, the lamb, Jesus, the lamb of God, shall be their shepherd. That is, in the ultimate, the shepherd, so one with the sheep. The shepherd became a lamb of the flock, one, absolutely one. Jesus came where we are. But, uh, just, just a minute, I, I, I said he's there. He He's right in the middle of the wilderness, and he's on the same paths of the sheep, was on, he's walking the pathways of insanity and the dangers and so on. But just a minute, you see, he's a sheep, but he's the shepherd. And so, though he has come where the lost sheep is and gotten inside all the pressures of the darkness that calls him to disobedience and the same insanity as the sheep, he, he is not lost. The shepherd isn't lost. The shepherd is exactly where the sheep is, but he knows the way out. And he can make a judgment of what has taken place and say that the sheep made an insane choice here. Jesus got inside our sin and our guilt and our darkness, but he never sinned. Jesus, do you, do you understand? He came where we are, but he was never lost. He came right where we are into the corruption of the lie, but never believed it. He was never lost, and he always was the way out. And that's why he comes where we are to in himself take us out. Understand it. In Luke 2.52, it, it says that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, favor with God and men. And that word kept increasing is a word literally translated to mean advancing with blows. It means someone with a machete carving and cutting a path through an impenetrable jungle. Jesus kept moving forward, cutting a path that had never been there before. What's he saying? He came where we are, but he refused to believe the lie. He obeyed his Father continually, and he lived in self-for-others' love. And he refused to be of the flesh. He refused to be of this world. <clears throat> he, he makes a new path. Makes a new path. He did that all his life. Jesus, in all his life, was in our wilderness, seeking us, coming where we are. But he's, he comes to where the sheep is, as that until he find it. And where are we? It says we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. 
If he penetrates to us, he's got to find us in the middle of our death. And that's, he goes through Gethsemane, and his sufferings in the scripture says in that he became our curse. He became our sin. Or as Isaiah 53 says, the Lord caused all of our iniquity to meet in him. Jesus embraces us in our death and our darkness. He becomes us. Please understand this. I wish I had 10 more hours right now. Jesus didn't do that merely for us as something he does as the expert in saving. Rather, he is it. That is, he's not going to stand over here and save your sin over there. He comes and inside your guilt. He comes inside your bondage. He comes inside your corruption, inside your crazy mind and imagination. He takes it. It's his own. It's as if he comes to you and says, it's okay, I've got this. I'm instead of you. That's why I have said so many times, when you look at Jesus in his suffering, see your own face, for he has become you. And he who is God has taken your individual, personal place. He has come where his sheep really is. And then... In the power of his life, he destroys death. In the power that he is the light of the world, he shreds and dispels the darkness. In that he is the truth, he exposes and shatters the lie. And because he is God who is love, he shouts into the midst of our fears and condemnation, your sins are forgiven you. And he grabs us and he says, we are out of here. For he as you, and I can't say that strong enough, you're the one sheep. The one as you, the Father, has declared him innocent. The Father has declared him the victor over the powers of darkness. And he rises out of death. He has destroyed death. Death died. And he carried you out with him, carried you to the Father. So he doesn't give you healing and wholeness. He is it. Do you understand? You were made one with him, and he, in the strength of who he is, dismissed your sin and guilt and shame and brokenness. It happened in him. Your life happened in Christ. So he then is your healing. He is your wholeness. He is your sanity of mind. He is the peace of your imagination and his purity. He is, he is the way home. He doesn't give you a map. He is the way home. He, he doesn't give you stuff. He doesn't give you things. He is it. He took your place and he, like a machete, cut right through carries you to the Father. In fact, and somebody said after I gave a little hint of this the other day, they never heard of it. Well, it's right here in Luke 15 that Jesus took that sheep and put it around his neck like a scarf. Incredible. What a statement. What a sight. The sheep is around the neck of the shepherd. Interesting, at the end of this chapter 15 of Luke, do you remember it says the father, who now the prodigal son is talking about, and he says the father fell on his neck and kissed him. So putting the arms around the neck, putting the sheep around his neck, it, it is a statement of, of intense love and closeness and intimacy. Well, if you were a sheep and you're put around the neck, uh, like a scarf, where would your head be? Right here. Which means that you are cheek to cheek with the shepherd. It means you're eyeball to eyeball every time he turns. You couldn't be closer. And when he whispers his encouragement and strength and sheep love into your ears, your ear is there in his... Do, do you see? Intimacy. Round his neck. 
Shepherd doesn't say heal and expect you to come and walk at his heel. He doesn't share a map with you and say, this is where we're going. If, if you lose me, this is... no, he puts the sheep around his neck. And that means they are one. And where the shepherd goes, the sheep goes. It means the sheep has become one spirit with the mind of the shepherd. They walk with the same feet. They're going in the same way. As the shepherd has entered into the death of the sheep in the wilderness, so now the sheep enters into the life of the shepherd. That's the gospel. Jesus brought heaven to earth and earth to heaven. Or as the earliest Christian said in the first four or five centuries of the church, that he, God the Son, became as us, that we might become as he. The great exchange. Great exchange. Do you realize why they were astonished and amazed? Because what I've just said is the end of religion. When I define religion, according to Webster's Dictionary, the word means a return to bondage. That's the meaning of the word religion. And, and, and religion is just a list of all the things you can't do and ought to do. It, it's, it's nothing but... And why, why do you do that? Because religion assumes. Religion's assumption. Religion is built on that you are separated from God. You think about it. And if you go to services on a Sunday that might be in the category of religion, then it's all you're here. There's the, the separation. They'll even begin the service asking God to show up because they're not sure whether he'll be here or not. And, and the whole sermon is to tell you that you're separated. You did this, you did that, you thought that, therefore you're separated. And now we've got this prayer for you to pray so you can be unseparated I suppose but we're never sure of that because we're back again on Wednesday and next Sunday for the same parade you, you see what it is separation you're separated separated if you hadn't have done that then but if you do this then but as for now you're separated sometime in the future whenever you do this say this go here then perhaps maybe if you get a right heart right passion it's religion and it's all based on the assumption you're separated. That's why some churches have been so upset when I've gone to preach, because I've blown their altar call. Because I've convinced everybody you're not separated. God came into the human race and he joined us as our kin. He's our neighbor, next door neighbor. He's our relative. God became human. He joined himself to us and then through the Holy Spirit joins us to him. The great exchange. It is so. Jesus said in John fourteen twenty, In that day you shall know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. hope that makes sense after what I've just said. So what is a Christian? Philippians 1.21 For me, said Paul, to live, be alive, is Christ. Philippians 4.13 I can do all, I can do all things through him who strengthens or infuses his strength with mine. Colossians 3 says For you have died, that is you've been included into his death, and your life, your daily grind is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Galatians 2.20, we know that one. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. Philippians 2 again, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, 
I mean, I could keep going. <laughs> Most of the New Testament could be quoted to say what I'm saying. This is the desire of the Holy Trinity concerning you. The most intense, most personal, most intimate, most together with relationship. That's what God desires. That's why he created us. And it is why he seeks to save us, not from something, but to this. A union in which we are in Jesus Christ and He is in us through the Spirit. To the point where, let me put it this way, we occupy the same space as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, Son and Holy Spirit occupy the same space as you, your life. And do so seamlessly. That is, you don't say, well, you know... I'm going to watch football now, so I suppose God stands at the door. No, he's having a jolly good time with you, you see. You say, well, I, I was talking to some friends about hunting. I, I don't think that was spiritual. Don't be daft. He's in you and you are in him and this. it's seamless. You don't drop in and out. All the personal energy of the love of God and His light, His truth are now in you and through you. Whether you feel that or not, I say again, this is revolution. This is like an earthquake. This is a tornado of love that has come to the world. It's the end of the external law And now we live by the internal Holy Spirit. We have been found. We are around the neck of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in union with him who has fulfilled the law and carried us in resurrection and ascension to the Father. Well, I I don't know how you feel when I say things like this. See, we have been brainwashed, every one of us, brainwashed. We have developed this habit of thinking. It's how we imagine ourselves as being separate from God. I I know you do. I I know you do. (laughs) why, Why do you think I can tell you all of this? It's because when I started on this journey, I was a sheep lost in the wilderness of religion. I, I, I know. I know what that brainwashing is. The, the feeling that before God you're inferior and, and forever not enough. And you're condemned for not trying hard enough. And all the best you can do is pray that God would show up in your life. Somehow there'd be revival. Oh, what a word. You know, and the heavens open. Oh, God, come down. Would somebody please read the gospel? Would somebody please remember Jesus came? You talk like a bunch of Old Testament people. And what I have said tonight turns religion on its head. It's revolution. It replaces religion with the unthinkable that we live and move in union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's the end of trying. I I suppose I could call this hour together as stop trying to be good. Because this is the the end of trying. is the end of saying, have I done enough? The fact is you are one with Jesus who is the final enough. He's the one who who has not, he's not just done good. He is goodness. He is love. And you are one with him. That's the end of gauging yourself. For you see your true self is the one you're united with, Jesus Christ the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit teach you who you truly are because he teaches you who Jesus truly is. And with your eyes thus open, go and let the revolution be revealed in your life. And now the blessing of God who is almighty love 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless you with insight into this grace that is in Christ Jesus. To that end, I bless you and declare that is the way it is.